Hello, this is Julian Gurdon from the English Department of St. Columbus College in Dublin in Ireland. Look at our blog sccenglish.ie for more. This is the latest in a series of short podcasts on ten characters in the play Hamlet. Ophelia is one of the most memorable figures in literature, and indeed elsewhere in culture, particularly in art, where there are vivid representations of her death by painters such as John Everett Millay and John William Waterhouse. This young woman's story seems particularly haunting. She doesn't in fact appear a great deal in the play, compared to major characters such as Hamlet himself or Claudius, but it's difficult to come away from a performance without her fate in your head. She is, in the correct use of the word, truly pathetic, where pathetic means evoking pity or sympathy. And the critic Tony Tanner calls her the most pathetic victim of this sick and perverted society. That sickness originated in one act, the regicidal and fratricidal murder of King Hamlet by Claudius. And then the sickness spreads, and many other characters arguably become complicit in what Marcellus calls the rottenness. Most importantly, Hamlet himself, but again arguably Laertes, Gertrude, Polonius, Rosencrantz, Guildenstern. But one person who cannot be accused at all is Ophelia. What happens to her is certainly none of her own fault. The portrayal of Ophelia, like of course many other characters in this great play, has undergone many changes of fashion in the theatre. Classically she is totally helpless, naive, a little mouse crushed by the forces around her. More recently she has been given more toughness by actors. Both qualities you can find in her the first time we see her. Not in the public court scene of Act 1, Scene 2, presumably she's not important enough to attend, but in Act 1, Scene 3, when she is given advice about her love life by her brother Laertes. Again, this can be played broadly in two ways, as affectionate and sensible cautionary words, or as potentially hypocritical interference. His lengthy advice centres on the idea about Hamlet. His greatness weighed, his will is not his own, for he himself is subject to his birth, he may not, as unvalued persons do, carve for himself. So the message is, steer clear, particularly sexually. Ophelia shows she has at least some spark by cautioning to him to practice what he preaches. If she hasn't had enough advice, then comes in her father. See the previous podcast on Polonius. His advice is more like an order. The question of Ophelia's treatment by Hamlet thereafter is complicated, Perhaps confusing, but certainly important. You can pick your motive for it from a wide selection over the ages. Genuine madness, cunning protection, not very successful if so, displaced rage at his mother. But whatever you choose, there is no denying that it is unjustified, unfair and cruel, and the result is catastrophic. After Hamlet leaves, in Act 3, Scene 1, in the Get Thee to a Nunnery scene, Ophelia speaks heartbreaking words and one's very useful for us as students of the play, since they give us a vivid portrait of Hamlet before his father died. That speech starts, Oh, what a noble mind is here o'erthrown, and finishes, Oh, woe is me to have seen what I have seen, see what I see. But she has even worse to face. In Act 4, Scene 5, Hamlet's shocking killing of her father tips her over the edge. There can't be much worse than seeing your boyfriend abuse and reject you before he kills your father. 
Back to 4, scene 5, she is clearly out of her mind, and that is the last time we see her. Her death is reported by Gertrude in Act 4, scene 7, to her brother. Just do be careful on reading this. She did not set out to kill herself. She fell in the weeping brook rather than jumping into it, and the key phrase is that she was as one incapable of her own distress. The critic Tony Nuttall, in his book, Shakespeare the Thinker, calls the death a wretched, unglamorous accident or worse, and points out that it actually happened in a cold month in rural England more than 400 years ago. It happened when Shakespeare was 15, in December 1579, when a girl in Stratford drowned after trying to fill a bucket with water. Her name was Catherine Hamlet. Hello, this is Julian Gurdon from the English Department of St Columbus College in Dublin in Ireland. Look at our blog sccenglish.ie for more. The eighth character in this series on ten minor characters in the play Hamlet is not, strictly speaking, a character in the play at all. In fact, he's in the play within the play, The Mousetrap, and appears in just that scene, Act 3, Scene 2. But the player king has a structurally important role, since he prompts Claudius's effective admission of guilt, as far as Hamlet is concerned. And moreover, in one particular speech, he hits on some of the core ideas of the play, and his words are well worth some attention. The mousetrap starts with a dumb show, a kind of silent preview. The king, Claudius, says nothing in response. He must be half boiling with anger, half fearful of what is to come. And the words of his brother's doppelganger fulfil his worst fears. The dialogue is in rhyming couplets. This might make it sound artificial, but its import is all too real. The player queen protests her undying love for her husband, even if he is dying. After the king says she must be beloved again after his death, she protests, Such love must needs to treason in my breast. In second husband let me be accursed. None wed the second but who killed the first. Not exactly a subtle message for Claudius. And then comes the speech I want to analyse. It starts, I do believe you think what now you speak. But what we do determine, oft we break. This has obvious relevance to all three central characters. It is firstly directed at the player Queen, and also, therefore, to Gertrude. But then we think of the two main characters. We already know from his aside in the previous scene, Act 3, Scene 1, that Claudius's conscience is weighed down. How smart a lash that speech doth give my conscience, he says and he refers to his heavy burden. And in the next scene, Act 3, Scene 3, we hear the full details in his soliloquy, O oh, my offence is rank, it smells to heaven. It hath the primal eldest curse upon it, a brother's murder. Then comes the point of his words, Pray can I not, though inclination be as sharp as will. And in the rest of the soliloquy, he desperately tries to pray, to get through to God. He fails. What we do determine, oft we break. Claudius is a man, in his own words, to double business bound. And however strong his inclination or will, he fails to turn these feelings into action. Claudius and Hamlet 
mortal enemies are strangely similar in this. Each wants to do something, but finds it difficult to do. The player king's words most importantly hit on the central story, that of the Prince of Denmark. When Hamlet heard that his father had been murdered, he said to the ghost, Haste me to know it, that I, with wings as swift as meditation or the thoughts of love, may sweep to my revenge. He doesn't sweep to his revenge. And in his soliloquy, after seeing Fortinbras and his army heading off to Poland, accuses himself. How all occasions do inform against me, and spur my dull revenge. And I do not know why yet I live to say this thing's to do, sith I have cause and will and strength and means to do it. His revenge is far from swift. Instead, it is dull. The rest of the Player King's speech essentially repeats this idea. What to ourselves in passion we propose, the passion ending doth the purpose lose. And towards the end of it, he again hits on a central idea. But orderly to end where I begun, our wills and fates do so contrary run, that our devices still are overthrown. Our thoughts are ours, their ends none of our own. Few lines so perfectly capture the essence of this play. Life is not neat. It does not turn out as we expect it to, or want it to, and we do not control our destiny. Hello, this is Julian Gurnham from the English Department of St. Columbus College in Dublin in Ireland. Look at our blog sccenglish.ie for more. This is the second last in a series of short talks about minor characters in the play Hamlet. Late in the play, at a critical moment, we meet a new character, one of little real importance, and one whose role is often cut drastically. But Shakespeare did know his stagecraft. So why did he give over some pages to Osric, and how can this insignificant figure help us in our study of the play? The answer, as it is with so many other minor characters, such as Fortinbras, Horatio, Laertes, is in what he tells us about Hamlet. For when Osric has his brief and rather peculiar meeting with the prince, Hamlet is heading towards the defining moment of his life, the one when he will take revenge for the murder of his dear father. As I have already said in a couple of these talks, particularly those on Polonius and Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, Claudius's court is full of sycophants, people whose only real concern is their position in the court, and who lack any moral fibre, just like their boss. Osric seems to be one of these. He has come to organise the fencing match with Laertes. His first slurpy line to Hamlet is, Your lordship is right welcome back to Denmark, and Hamlet immediately skewers him by calling him to Horatio a waterfly, a nothing, a skater over the surface of things. By the way, if you take out the common or garden words such as the, a, a, a and, and so on, the most commonly used significant word in the play is lord, and a pretty good proportion of these lords seem to come from Osric. This is a hierarchical culture in which everyone calls each other lord. When Hamlet says it is hot, or cold, or sultry, Osric agrees with him every time. When he finally gets around to delivering his message, he produces an absurdly baroque sentence which Hamlet immediately mocks. 
Sir, his definement suffers no perdition in you, and so on. And Osric rises to the bait. Your lordship speaks most infallibly of him. There follows much stuff about the details of the fencing, and Hamlet seems to be enjoying toying with this waterfly. So if we can dismiss the waterfly as a man of no importance in himself, he does nevertheless serve the function of highlighting something in Hamlet, a state of mind we have already seen suggested in his encounter with the first gravedigger, who will be the subject of the next and final of these talks. In his discussion with Osric, there's none of the fraught intense Hamlet of the early part of the play. Instead, he seems liberated, unbothered, light on his feet, ready for what is to come. And after Osric is gone, he says to Horatio that such men are the same breed that I know the drossy age dotes on, who sound the tune of the time. They are a sort of yeasty collection, which carries through and through the most profound and winnowed opinions, and do but blow them to their trial, the bubbles are out. But there's no anger here. As we've seen since he returned from Hamlet, he is at ease with himself, ready for what is to come. And when Horatio says that he will put off the fencing match, in case there is something underhand about it, Hamlet responds, Not a whit. We defy augury. There is special providence in the fall of a sparrow. If it be not now, tis not to come. If it be not to come, it will be now. If it be not now, yet it will come. The readiness is all. Since no man knows aught of what he leaves, what is to leave betimes, let be. And there is the answer to the famous question, to be or not to be, let be. Hamlet has some much more serious encounters to come in the remaining pages of the play, with Claudius most of all. But even in that short scene with Osric, we can see that he is now at ease, comfortable in his own skin, ready to face what is to come. Hello, this is Julian Gerdham from the English Department of St. Columbus College in Dublin in Ireland. Look at our blog sccenglish.ie for more. And this is the final talk in my series on ten relatively minor characters in the play Hamlet. Finally, today, the first gravedigger. This talk is therefore appropriately about finality. Death haunts the end of Hamlet. The deaths of virtually everyone, except Horatio and Fortinbras, take place. Death started the story too, the murder of King Hamlet by his brother Claudius, a murder which opened a Pandora's box of death. And we've always known that death was where it was heading too, from the moment that the ghost insisted that his son has to revenge his foul and most unnatural murder. Either Claudius or Hamlet was always going to die, or as it turns out, both of them and plenty of others too. In some way, Hamlet's old self, hesitant and over-intellectual, seems to suffer its own death on the journey to England, and when he returns to Denmark and rejoins Horatio, he is almost reborn. In his letter to Claudius he wrote, I am set naked on your kingdom. He comes for his revenge like a naked newborn babe, and the final act of the play starts very much with death, as two gravediggers discuss the doubtful nature of Ophelia's death. 
As Tony Tanner points out in his introduction to the Everyman edition of the play, the first gravedigger, quote, makes a most pertinent point, even when he seems to be mocking legal pedantry. They are discussing, apropos of the doubt hovering over Ophelia's death, suicide, and he says, For here lies the point. If I drown myself wittingly, it argues an act, and an act hath three branches. It is to act, to do, to perform. It is Hamlet's problem and task to work out the relations between acting, doing, and performing, to somehow recover or re-establish, to use his own phrase, the name of action. End quote. The gravediggers are men entirely easy in the presence of death, accepting it simply as a natural part of the process of life. As Horatio tells Hamlet about the first gravedigger, custom hath made it in him a property of easiness, and Hamlet replies, "'Tis e'en so. The hand of little employment hath the daintier sense." What we see in Hamlet, as he comes towards the end of the play, and to his revenge, is that he too is losing his daintier sense. There follows the famous conversation between Hamlet and the gravedigger. Not surprisingly, the topic is the one thing these people of very different classes, royal and lowly citizen, have in common, death. And it is the nature of the conversation about this gloomy and distressing subject that matters, for what it tells us about Hamlet and his state of mind right now. Though they may be of different classes, and one man is uneducated, whereas the other is a student of philosophy, in these pages they seem equal. The gravedigger's quick-wittedness pleases Hamlet. How absolute the knave is, he exclaims to Horatio, and follows this with, We must speak by the card, or equivocation will undo us. Exactly. Hamlet has been struggling all along to get things right, to be precise, and here is someone who is absolute. There is also a personal connection. The gravedigger has been a grave-maker since the very day that young Hamlet was born, he that is mad and sent into England. Then Hamlet sees Yorick's skull, and reflects on the way that we all eventually lose everything that makes us human. Just before the funeral procession arrives, and Hamlet discovers that it is the funeral of Ophelia, he comments on the inevitability of this process for all of us, even the most important. Imperious Caesar, dead and turned to clay, might stop a hole to keep the wind away. He understands that we are all subject to death, and he is ready for what is to come. And so ends this series on ten characters in Hamlet.